give us a, a proper introduction of who we have in the room. <laughs> proper introduction. Yes, uh, introduce yourself. So. I'm well. It's funny because my introduction, like my professional introduction, includes you know Lincoln Park and Fort Minor and the production stuff, like the the music I've made and the, all that. Mm -hmm. But usually when I'm just talking, like I have kids, right? So yeah. when I talk to people, that oh hey, you know what do you do? I don't give them a straight answer at all. I usually just tell them like, oh, I just, I'm an artist. You mean at like the PTA meetings? And yeah, stuff? like something like that. Yeah, <laughs> oh, I'm an artist or right. I'm, a, I'm a musician. I feel like the word artist then begs like more questions. It does. Yeah. It's, it's kind of, I stopped, I had to stop doing that a little bit. Right. You should just be like, I'm a consultant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> From Hype East Radio, I'm Jeff Staple and this is The Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. It's not often we have a musician as a guest on The Business of Hype, but Mike Shinoda is no ordinary musician. He helped form Linkin Park, one of the most influential and successful music acts of not only our generation, but of all time. There's a rare breed of acts in music that has sold millions upon millions of records. Now I know when numbers get that big, it's kind of hard to put things into perspective. So let me help. Aretha Franklin, 25 million records sold lifetime. Nirvana, 46 million. Tupac Shakur, 51 million. Prince, 65 million. Britney Spears, 81 million. And Linkin Park, well, they've generated over 85 million units sold worldwide, putting them neck and neck with none other than Beyonce herself. But Mike Shinoda has managed to avoid many of the trappings that fame, success, and ridiculous amounts of money usually garners. Mike can still go to the movies. He can still walk into a deli. He can go to the grocery store. And that's all by deliberate design. In fact, Mike probably could have made a pretty decent career for himself being a designer or artist. But thanks to his millions of rabid fans around the world, he chose music. And while Mike decided on the quiet life, his bandmate, the late Chester Bennington, was a casualty of it. And Mike's new solo album, Post Traumatic, is an emotional love letter outlining how he dealt with the untimely loss of his partner. And whether you have a band or a business, many of the trials and tribulations are similar. For Mike Shinoda and Linkin Park, they're inseparable. And we were talking before we started recording, talking about, you know, uh, you went to Parsons. Yeah. I went to Art Center. Like, I, I went to school for art, and, and it was in the more traditional sense. Like, I went for, for uh, illustration and, mm -hmm. and some graphic design. And yeah. That's what I thought I was going to be doing until the music thing took off. Like, you yeah. probably could have been a working, successful artist slash graphic designer. Oh, that's for sure what I... I mean, I was, I was already doing... I had done a couple of... Um, album covers and like single covers for for rappers and uh um well it was it was put together like i i, I pitched to like a couple of like atlantic records and mm -hmm. a couple of like indie um hip-hop labels and got a couple things um just before we got signed ourselves to yeah. warner records and they didn't know like holy they didn't shit know. really yeah i did styles of beyond i did you ever hear the uh, canadian rapper socrates of course i love socrates like, so his 12 inch for his like one of his early singles i did that it's an image of him breaking a turntable in half with his hands okay that's illustration was I did wow that. um i and, did a couple you, other little and ones. when warner picked you up I, we're getting ahead of ourselves in the interview but when <laughs> warner picked you up you were still thinking like 
I got to get these gigs out here. Like, well, I got to get these art. It was, no, at that point, I think at that point I knew. Like, at okay. that point it was already, um, we had showcased, um, just to set the stage, like, I, I, I went to school. I had always, in high school, music was always, like, in the background. Mm -hmm. I, do, I would do it for fun. I'd do it every weekend. And during the week, you know, I was doing at least one class of art. And then after school, I would also take art mm -hmm. because I, I needed to get my portfolio together to submit for college. Yeah. And I got into Art Center, which for people that don't know, it's kind of it's kind of like the Harvard of art schools. It's mm -hmm. like a, it's like there are a handful of schools um, that are just really rigorous training. They're great, you know, uh, programs. And, and it's like an inferior expensive. Parsons. It's an inferior Parsons. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's like second rate Parsons. Uh, some some you know less educated people would say that, and. <laughs> I think it's funny that you do that because like the real. I think the real. Um, <laughs> Even at art schools, there are, you know, uh, adversarial oh, totally. you know, relationships. And really, the Art Center, CalArts, maybe RISD too. Like, those three schools really, like, go at it with yeah. each other. I feel um, like RISD is the one that no one can really talk shit about. <laughs> a little like, bit. A when little someone's bit. from RISD, I'm like, damn. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I got into art. But I didn't apply for those schools because I, I actually, I actually uh, toured. I, I knew I didn't want to leave uh, uh, Cal California, mm -hmm. so I didn't apply for RISD. Right. I toured uh, Cal Arts, and I liked it. But I, I, and I applied for there. But I really wanted to get into Art Center, mm -hmm. and I did. So I was at school there, and I was playing music on the um, on the weekends, and um, again just for fun. And then we, uh, the band started getting attention, started yeah. taking off. And then by the time, like probably three months before the end of, well, before I graduated, mm -hmm. um, the, uh, we got a, we got an offer from Warner records and we had showcased for every label. They had turned turned uh -huh. every single one of them had turned us down. All the indie labels had turned us down. Like everybody had seen us and didn't care. Yeah. But we had, um, w at some point in the middle of that, we had parted ways with our previous singer and found Chester. Okay. And then started doing it again. And, they were more interested, but they still didn't sign us. Was this, as, it was called Zero, right? Yeah, originally the band was called Zero. With and, an then, X. and then, and then when we, when we um, started with Chester, we renamed the band Hybrid Theory. Okay. So the band was called Hybrid Theory. Oh, okay. and, then, and then when we signed with Warner, we changed the name from Hybrid Theory to Linkin Park and okay. called the album Hybrid Theory. So was, would you say Chester was instrumental in getting you guys signed? Like, was that. It was definitely the missing piece. Like yeah. we knew that our uh, my my other friend Mark, who was singing for us, who I started the band with, it mm -hmm. was just in the beginning. It was just me and Mark, and we were both artists. Uh, he ended up going to do a graphic uh, study, graphic design at um, Long Beach State, and um, he was more. He loves music and he loves, um, but he's more he's more into the the management side. Yeah, really is what it ended up being. So he ended up doing that. Okay. So he's a successful. People always say like, "Oh man, that sucks to be that guy." Like he wasn't he the singer. Like, no, he's like a successful music manager. Like <laughs> right. he manages a ton of great rock bands. You know, System of a Down, Deftones. They managed Cypress Hill and uh -huh. all this stuff. So yeah, he he's done great. Right. Yeah. When you were so rewind a little bit when you first entered into school, like you were just going to be destined to be like a working designer slash artist right was right. musician like a distant third no it was it was there i mean i just i was just trying to juggle it um it wasn't going to pay the bills yeah right? so that was the thing is like i i knew i had to take design jobs i was working at a design house in glendale which is near um kind of on the north um east side of los angeles mm -hmm. and um they have a good mall there 
<laughs> great mall. Great mall. Great Korean there. food. Great. Um, it's party. like basically all like all like Armenian and Korean actually yeah. out there. Um, which is where Joe was from, coincidentally. Oh, really? Joe's Korean. <laughs> and where you found Joe. Right, where I found Joe. Um, so, yeah, I was, I mean, it, you know. You're just being realistic. The, the graphic like, design was like paying the bills, so yeah. I couldn't really stop doing that. And um, it also, you know, all of these things work together. I mean, just in the context of like kind of the, some of the stuff that you talk about on this podcast. Um, learning how, like, like a gra- as a freelance illustrator, graphic designer, you're running your own business. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're constantly like having to go and drum up work. And, yeah. And also you have to be a good collaborator mm-hmm. and all of those things translated. I knew from the very beginning, even as I was like, when I was in college, when I, the band was really, really new, I knew that all those things translated to both things that I was trying to do. Yeah. Like in school we would do, um, these projects where, you might work for you know twenty hours on a on a piece, mm-hmm. and then you come into class and you put in you know fifteen people would put all their work up on the wall, yep. and you spend a few hours telling each other why their work is the worst thing you've ever seen and yeah. it sucks shit, and you you know this is what's wrong with it, right? And you have to take that, like uh-huh. you have to sit there and listen to everybody else tell you why your work is a piece of shit, totally, and figure out how to like number one have a thick skin about it, but number two really like find the truth in those things. Mm-hmm. And I always found the stuff that, that made me the most angry was the stuff that was right. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, if somebody said something that was just ridiculous, like yeah. I'd never really, I had a thick skin about that. I was just like, well, You're they don't, they yeah. don't know. They just, their, their perspective is different than mine. They're, their, their goals are different than mine. Right. They're not trying to make the same thing I'm trying to make. Mm-hmm. But if somebody says something that like, I couldn't understand why it bothered me so much, it was usually because there was some element of truth yeah. to what it was they were right. saying. Yeah, the power of critiques. Yeah, man. Yeah. And that's true for a band too. Like in a collaborative, like our band was always, um, has always been a, like a democracy. Mm-hmm. And so listening to each other's opinions and criticisms and stuff has always been like a big, um, it's been one of the key components of, yeah. of the band. Back in this time frame, who were like your inspirational muses? Um, okay. I remember... Well, see so the obvious stuff like musically, mm-hmm. I listened to. Um, I had always been a big fan of Nine Inch Nails, Deftones on the rock side. Those guys, um, and and also like some classic, more classic stuff like Jimi Hendrix and and uh, Led Zeppelin, mm-hmm. uh, which incidentally I got turned on to because of a lot of Rick Rubin's production. Mm-hmm. Um, so Public Enemy, Beastie Boys, Run DMC, and then you know at that time the Roots were really starting to happen. So I yeah. loved the Roots. I loved. Um, a lot of the raucous stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, I designed a lot of the raucous stuff. I remember reading that. Yeah. <laughs> so wild, man. So crazy. I mean, that stuff was like so... It's it's like so... Um, at that time, mm-hmm. I was just talking about this in the car because we were listening to uh, Farside. Yeah. You remember the Farside? Of course. Okay. So the Far Side came out. It was a rap group from L.A. And like it was very like the vibe that I always got from them was like it was like tagger, skater, like almost like pre-backpack, mm-hmm. backpack rap. Yeah. Like they were very they were they were playing live. Mu- there was live music going on, like uh-huh. drum, real live drums and bass and all that and guitar and them rapping over it at like you'd catch them at like house parties doing yeah. that. Apparently, I didn't I didn't actually ever see that. I did see them on stage mm-hmm. um, as a with everybody there. Yeah. Like in the early days. And, um, 
then all of a sudden things changed. Like they were, this was a group that was like, it was all about the, these more like, um, they were just having fun, mm -hmm. right? It was very playful and jammy. And then all of a sudden it was like Nas came out and right. then it was like Nas and Mob Deep and Biggie and Tupac and so on. And you just, there was a seriousness uh -huh. and a, and a complexity yep. to the delivery, to the subject matter. And, and even to your, like the culture behind your, like your personal story, who, yeah. who is this rapper? Uh -huh. And if you didn't have that, like mm -hmm. then nobody wanted to hear you. Like, right. so all of a sudden, like a group like Farside couldn't exist. You're right. Wow. And, and so I was, and I was deep into all that. Like I loved, I probably listened to more East coast hip hop than, than LA than West coast hip hop, but mm -hmm. I listened to it all. I, I did. I was, that was my probably like 90% of what I listened to. And then did you have like artist slash illustrator? Graphic yeah, yeah design for sure. Muses? So in, in school I was more, um, since I was focusing on illustration, it was a lot of, um, like the, Mark Ryden kind of world. Yeah. It was very, it was a little more cartoonish. Um, was I, Juxtapose a big thing in your so life? Yeah. Uh, uh, magazines like Juxtapose, galleries like La Luz de Jesus. Uh huh. Um, and, and, you know. Giant Robot. Uh, of course. Yeah. Giant Robot. Yeah, yeah. These are just, I mean, I hate to say old school now because it, make, it makes us old. Yeah. But <laughs> these were but, like mainstays back then. But man, it's, like. all that stuff is very, like, the, part of, one of the things about the internet is that you can go deep on just about anything, mm -hmm. but I feel like the, the, the recorded history or the, or the, what do you call that? The verbal history, rather, yeah. not the recorded history, the verbal history of people that were there uh -huh. and, 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 and fell in love with these things. Like that's, it's so important to keep that alive yeah. because, um, it, it, it because it, speaks to the, 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 the things that are in play now. Everything is cyclical. So mm -hmm. like you learn things from um, movements that have already happened. I was talking to, to Bobby, Kim, mm -hmm. Bobby Hundreds, yeah. and, um, who's a friend, and we were talking about how you know, we're hitting an age where like, he, he's got employees that you know, they did. Uh, this came up because we were talking about the uh, Karate Kid collabo they did. Uh-huh which is a movie that we all loved growing up. Like me in particular being half Japanese, like yeah. this movie was like, I was practically looking at my family and they lived in Encino near where I lived. Like the right. dude, <laughs> Mr. Miyagi looked like my dad. Uh -huh. Like it was like very familiar. Yeah. And the, in, in, you know, and so Bobby did that, that collabo and I was like, oh man, that was such a good, uh, a cool one to do. And he said, you know, obviously a lot of my staff hadn't seen the movie. Uh -huh. So when I told them about like, I'm, this is going to be one of the things I always ask who's seen it and who's, who is not. And then we do a screening at the office. Yeah. And he found himself like in this position of like, he felt like when I was your age, uh -huh. like, let me tell you this story well, right. about whatever and trying to explain, you know, these things, which he has to do pretty regularly <laughs> about some of the, you know, the collabos that they, they do. Um, and, I feel weird because I don't ever want to, I don't, I don't, you know, I being on the receiving end of that, I didn't always love that as a kid. Yeah. Like when somebody's like, le it feels like they're lecturing you. But if it is the other, if it is that the type of scenario with it, Bobby's talking about where you say, oh, you know, I'm not pushing this information on you, but if you mm -hmm. want to know, I'll tell you. Right. And oftentimes, you know, they do want to hear it. Yeah. They do want to hear the, you know, you can learn something from it. But that's exactly who we didn't want to be growing up, which is like, yeah. I think I even said to myself, like, when I grow up, I'm not going to be like my dad who says, when I was your age, yeah. it wasn't like this. And I, I find myself saying that now. Yeah. So it's annoying. I think it's like, a, it's a, just, 
you just take a beat to like let somebody opt in. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. Right. Yeah. You can see how all the varied interests that Mike had very likely prepared and built him into the man he would soon become. Not too many people I know can cite inspirations like Nine Inch Nails, Led Zeppelin, then Public Enemy and The Roots, and then Mark Ryden and Juxtapose Magazine. Mike is literally all over the place. And that's probably a good thing. As you'll soon hear, Mike and Linkin Park are about to jettison into stratospheric levels of fame. But at the same time, never really feeling completely comfortable in any one area. Constantly shifting constantly testing new things. I think this was a prerequisite for the challenges he would soon have to face. You touched on this a little bit just now, but like, let's talk a little bit about being Asian. And like, especially in your world of music where you found success, um, being an outcast in your culture of like, so let's say Eminem and hip hop, you know, as, as in being a minority, right? But then also like being Asian. So Asians in music back then, like you could count on one hand, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. The only one I could think of like at Is the time was, was James E. Ha from Smashing Pumpkins. Yes. He was, he was, an, he was Japanese, he a was, Japanese guy in a band, and right. he wasn't the, the center of the band. He right. wasn't the focus. Um, the one I think of is Jin, the MC. And later <laughs> on, yeah, later on, there were like these little one-off like – like Jin was an example of like, okay, he's a rapper. Wasn't he signed to Rough Riders? Yep. For like and a day. Yeah. And he was, he was good. He was ill. He was, yeah. good, he was a good rapper. And it was like, he was also at, out at a time when there were really great rappers. Yes. You know, and he never claimed to be as great as them. He mm -hmm. just, he just wanted to be in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but like an Eminem, like if, if you're, if you're that anomaly, uh-huh. You just have to be that much better. Yeah, right. You know? Did you feel that then? Did you feel like you were a minority? Because I feel like you were a minority in every oh my God. genre you went into. <laughs> you were the minority, right? I, I, it's almost comedic how many times <laughs> I've like written a song from that perspective. I like look back at it and I'm like, dude, when are you going to get over your, yourself? <laughs> get over it. Uh, um, but but I, I, you know, just the other day. So I'm, I have a new album out and I just, I, I just played... I've only played like three, four shows now. Yeah. And the, and the, the first big show that I did uh, a couple of weeks ago was an Asian um, heritage celebration in Los Angeles. I mm -hmm. played on the steps of City Hall. Um, it was an amazing show, amazing opportunity. Um, and spoke to a lot of fans there, you know, predominantly, I mean, like almost 100% Asian mm -hmm. crowd. And they were saying, they were talking about how, like, you know, how unique it was for them as a fan to, like, grow up on, to see me in a band and yeah. say, oh, you know, that guy's like me. Like, right. Um, and, and I know what's weird about it for me is that I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm mixed. So actually everybody thought when I was growing up, people thought I was Mexican. <laughs> they start speaking Spanish to me. And I'm like, you know, I don't, uh -huh. I don't know. Um, but the truth is, like, I, I did, like, we did a lot of... Um, culturally like we did certain things that are very japanese american in my house you know we we celebrated 
um, Boys Day, which eventually was Children's Day, mm-hmm. and we celebrated. Um, we would go to Obon festivals, you know, mm-hmm. they have down in, in in the valley, and we would do New Year's. Yeah, I'd see my my whole family and eat the traditional foods and stuff. Um, unfortunately, like my brother speaks Japanese, like pretty fluently. I I opted for art classes, so uh-huh. I didn't I didn't learn Japanese, but um, definitely was a, it was a it was complicated yeah. for sure being yeah. Japanese and like coming into music. I, I, like, here's an example. What, when we first, when we were called hybrid theory, mm-hmm. Joe and I being the two artists in the group, we designed a logo for the group mm-hmm. that was based on kanji. Okay. So Japanese letters. So we took the H and the T and put them into one symbol mm-hmm. and, and it looked Japanese. Yeah. And that's what we liked about it. Right. And that was our logo. And, when we got signed and we, sh- and we were talking about, Oh, let's put out these, you know, we're going to send uh, press up some, some like promotional demos right. to send to fans or whatever. The A&R guy at the label said, you know, I'm, I'm just not sure about the logo though. You know? And we yeah. were like, why? It's a, do- that logo's dope. Uh-huh. And he was basically like, you know, it just looks really like Oriental. Uh-huh. And I was like, First of all, he said Oriental. <laughs> Second of all, I was like, okay, and what's wrong with that? It's like a third of the band is right. Asian. And he's like, well, you know, it's like, it looks like those like car clubs or like whatever. He's like, you're not like a car club band. And I'm just like, it's like, like such a weird stereotypical thing to say. Like it had, it had nothing to do with anything. It was yeah. just in his mind. He was paranoid about the Asian-ness mm-hmm. of our logo. Yeah, yeah. Stupid. Right. And how did, the, how did you go from hybrid theory to Linkin Park? Was that like it's a- actually a dumb story. Okay. <laughs> it was like, I'll tell you anyway, but it's like the, the, uh, the label again, and one of those like regular labels have always had this bad reputation. I think they're, they, they they're probably better now than they've ever been. Mm-hmm. But, but back then, um, it was really, there's, there's some really shady stuff and dumb stuff. And they had convinced us that we can't be called hybrid theory because there's another group called hybrid. And, um, it was going to, be confusing yeah. for the consumer and blah 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 the truth is hybrid was like a electronic act mm-hmm. and i i don't even they could have been european or something i don't know they, there's no way anyone was going to get confused okay but the, again the same guy being that same person at the uh-huh. label was like paranoid about it and he made us he basically told us we had to change our name yeah um which we hated at first but then when we found the name lincoln park we're like ah we actually like that name uh-huh. so it's cool it's fine we'll right. just call the album hybrid theory and right right it's all good when um when you went from zero to hybrid theory to Lincoln Park and then you pretty quickly right after that hit like massive success, did you? I mean, you must have. You probably still to this day remember the days of zero, yeah. and then like, what was that switch like when it was like, holy shit, this is a different thing happening now. Something is like shifting right well, now. Well, I mean, the things that I remember, you know, um, I remember getting free meals and free clothes. Uh-huh. That was like a thing. You go, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Like, like people new? are sending okay. me all kinds of stuff. That's crazy. <laughs> um, they joke that like, as soon as you can afford to buy the cool stuff, people give it to you for free. Uh-huh. You know? <laughs> and you no longer have to buy it. Yeah. But that's not, I mean, that's not entirely true. We actually, um, well, we can come back to that. But the, the main thing is, um, the, the main, the, the moments when I really realized it were 
when we'd be touring with groups and they'd start treating us differently, like either treating us really extra good because they were trying to get on our good side or they were really jealous and they'd treat us really bad. Very interesting. Um, and we'd be on tour with them for like a whole month. It's yeah. like, you're going to spend a month with somebody and you're going to start treating them bad? Like, uh -huh. that's a bad look, you, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and b besides, like a, a few, few months later, they're like trying to open for us. They're like, wow. hey, guys, like, the <laughs> shit was fun touring with you guys back in the day. It's like, no, you guys treated us like shit. Like, we remember that. Oh, wow. I didn't think um, that'd be your answer, but that's really interesting. We didn't really, we didn't like, I, I guess with a few groups, we kind of like stayed away from it because yeah. it, was, it was just like we had been, you know, treated pretty bad. But for the most part, I'd say, you know, we, we had a few tours with different groups where we were first on the bill out of four mm -hmm. um, bands and the what we were used to is being like if there were four dressing rooms backstage the headliner would take all four and you'd be in your <laughs> your rv or van or bus. okay i didn't know it worked that way that's i mean they because that's their show i mean okay. they take whatever they want to take and then all of a sudden we got on this one tour and I'll, i mean i'll say their names because they were actually you know you love or hate their music i'll tell you that at the time this was it was shocking we went out on tour with papa roach mm -hmm. who was another new metal band yeah and um got there on day one to like load in and like do a sound check and all of the band was there they came out and were like saying hello to everybody mm. and they shook hands with all of us and said welcome to the tour we're happy to have you you know if you have any questions or, or issues or whatever like just just talk to us like, yeah we're not you don't have to you know Wow. The, yeah and it was like shocking uh -huh. right and i and it was one of those moments when i went like oh this is like that's how to be that's how to if you're going to be at the top of the food chain in right. any environment like the keep the door open let people know you're happy to 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 see them and glad that they've joined you for you know because truth be told like every band on the bill is bringing people in yeah like i may be we may be bringing 500 you may be bringing 2000 uh -huh. but it's like we're still but we're all contributing doing yeah. something right and giving fans a good time so we kind of took that with you know i, I definitely absorbed that kind of mentality and, and learned from that people often say the same people you see on the way up the ladder are the same people you're going to see on the way down and Mike alludes to a valuable lesson here that you can choose to embrace or ignore. But this goes way beyond band culture. It's the same for fashion, design, or any business for that matter. The way someone treats another person is the truest sign of their character. I remember early in my career, I had a meeting with a powerful CEO of a massive corporation. He wanted to see my work, and I was so proud and excited to have this meeting. And when I walked into the building, I remember the security guards made me enter through the back because they thought I was making a delivery. Hey, I get that dude was just doing his job, but I will never forget that feeling. Be mindful of how you treat everyone at every step of the journey. You may not remember the feeling, but I guarantee they will. And then when you became the headline act, mm -hmm. did it... Um, I mean, you're a very down-to-earth guy, I got to say. But, like, did it affect you? Like, did did you feel like you had to consciously be like, I have to remain down-to-earth? Like, no. I can't turn into... Oh, I did certain things. I did certain things. Like, I did... Um, in L.A., like, I, I've never... I, I still live in L.A. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was born um, on the Valley side, um, actually in Panorama City, which is not too far from, like... Um, where the karate kid you know, <laughs> yeah. is like not that far. Um, 10 minutes. Um, and then 
I've moved up and down the valley side, but as soon as you cross over the hill into <laughs> really? Beverly, Beverly Hills, yeah. Palisades, like that's where all the money is, uh-huh. right? And, and all the fancy houses and mm-hmm. all that stuff. And I never moved. I never, I could have yeah. moved down there because it's actually closer to a lot of things that you, to you know managers' offices and labels and all that stuff. But and it's like all these nice houses and stuff. But I, I never wanted to do that because I knew that slowly but surely that culture would affect me. Mm. And, and also like I, you know, planning on having kids and stuff like your kids growing up, you choose the place you decide to raise your kids like that, that affects the kind of people they are. Yeah. Whether you like it or not. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe it may not be, it, it probably doesn't completely define them, but it definitely colors their experiences. Yeah. The environment colors in, a lot for living sure. in like, yeah. So, not to say I've completely stayed away from that, but it's at least been a there. I've had an awareness yeah. of that for, for them and for me. Right. What's like after you gained the success and became instead of the opening to the headline, like what's the flossiest thing you ever did where you where you even I mean, checked yourself no. and you're like, that was crazy. Mike, What'd there was do? a point, there was a point where, um, do you remember, uh, uh, Pimp My Ride? Yeah. You remember the West Coast customs exhibit? So I had a, I had a, like a, like a, a, a green, like a, like an olive green Range Rover with mm-hmm. rims and a system in it that like they literally, that same company pimped, pimped. Okay. They pimped my ride. <laughs> um, that's and even, that's kind of modest. I mean that you got your ride pimped. I mean, that's, that's no, but it was like, to me, that was like, I didn't, I wasn't embarrassed <laughs> of that for uh-huh. sure. And I also wasn't like, I felt good. Like I felt like there was a, that was like a dream car at the moment. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's awesome. Um, we did stuff. I mean, the funny thing is like we always like uh, in general in the band, a, a lot of our we put a lot back into the band. Like mm-hmm. we would invest a lot of money into our records and like the way like this will sound really this will be kind of not what you expect, maybe, but um, m- make giving yourself the the environment and the opportunity to make a make albums in a very relaxed way with all of the um, gear and possibilities where, where it feels like anything I want to do in the studio, I can just do it. Yeah. Like that's very, um, what's the word? It's like, it's like a, uh, it's a luxury, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's a very, it's a, I mean, it's almost like if I think of it in that way, like our studio experience for a very long time has been very luxurious. Mm-hmm. And, and and that goes with like you know instead of instead of writing your songs at home and getting them ready and then bringing them in to record, we would walk in with nothing and yeah. just sit in the create studio and there, create yeah. with all of these amazing tools like right. you know hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars of gear. I don't know how much money. I mean, the stu- some of those studios spend that much on their gear. So the beautiful thing about that is to be able to go in and record in a studio for, you know, a year in yeah. that environment yeah. is like, that is expensive. Right. And we would do that because we knew that we were investing in our, not only our record that we were making, but our education about how to make a record. Mm-hmm. So I've spent at this point, I can't imagine how many years I've spent just sitting in a studio. Yeah. Many, many years. <laughs> right. Like 10,000 hours thing. Like that's like. You blew that out of the water. <laughs> that was like the first year I think we did that. But I think that's a good, that's a wise investment. <laughs> you invested in yourself versus the need to be like buying three Lamborghinis. Yeah, I'm not, I'm, I was never that guy. Yeah. Like that, that kind of attention doesn't really do anything for me. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but, so yeah, yeah, it's it always kind of went back into it. I think it went back into the the art and the work. That's dope. Um, I want to touch on one portion of your career, which is the project that you did with Jay Z, mm-hmm. and how like the crossover into like you talk about East Coast hip hop and how that was an inspiration for you coming up was the concept behind that. Did you birth that concept or did Jay do it? Like, how did that come to um, birth? Yeah, I, I mean, Is it, it came from me. It came from you. Okay. <laughs> so here's what happened. Um, uh, and I, 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 I remember that we got the, the message from uh, John Manili from Jay's manager uh-huh. um, saying, you know, it's basically MTV had gone to MTV had decided they wanted to make a series on mashups where they would take two dissimilar artists mm-hmm. and they put them together. It was basically like at the end of rap rock, they were like, okay, we're going to do these like mashups of bands and mm-hmm. rappers and, and that'll be a series. We'll do it like every week yeah. or every couple of weeks. And so they told Jay, would you do our num- our first episode and who do you want to do it with? And he said, Lincoln park. Mm-hmm. So he was the one that chose us and they called us and we said, that sounds amazing. Um, our manager said, how do you want to respond or whatever? We were touring in a bus at the time and I had a, um, a laptop with some recording software on it and an MPC. And Jay had just put out his black album, acapellas and instrumental. I think, did he just put acapellas out? Uh, whatever it was, I could get his acapellas. <laughs> and like literally just go get that, yeah. and, which was unusual. Um, so I made three of the songs. On a bus. In the bus, in like basically a day or two, I made them. Uh-huh. And that was my response. I sent those and I, I remember we had exchanged phone numbers and Jay texted, ba- texted me when he got them. I just got, looked at my phone and got this text that said, oh shit. Wow. That was it. That was the response. And they <laughs> all, I mean, everybody flipped over the idea and I, I got on the, we all got on the phone. It was like me and Brad on our side and then Jay and the managers. And it was basically like the, um, we had told them I was I, what I, what I wanted. I told them what I wanted to do. I said, they're going to say, you know, they want to do like these little, you know, mashup thing, mashup episodes. Mm-hmm. I think we go and we do basically an EP of songs and we, we create something that's so good. They can't do a series, like make the first episode so, so good big, that yeah. it's like the bar is too high. <laughs> and what they did, what nobody really knew is that by asking me to do it, this was my, this is the thing that I was better at than almost anything else. Like Uh my favorite thing to do when I was growing up, learning how to produce, learning how to make beats. The way I would make beats is mashing things up. Like I had been mashing stuff up since like the early nineties. Right. And my first beats were like, I'd sample nine inch nails and Rage Against the Machine and the Jackson Five, and put a Mob Deep acapella on it, or like a Wu Tang. <laughs> yeah, this is your shit. That yeah. was what I they did. They thought they were getting Lincoln Park, but they're weekend. actually getting you to no, do this every yeah. weekend. That's what I would do. We would, I would skip. I'd like people would have parties. I would go to my house and make stuff with my friends, and we maybe we'd rap over it. Maybe they'd just be mashups. Maybe they'd be joke songs. Yeah, and then we'd go to the party at like eleven thirty when everybody's already hammered, and like drive up and they be like, yeah, they come in the car and they listen to the new shit and I play them the song. That's and they, sick. The, you know, and so that's, you know, when we did the, the collision course thing, it was just that. That's, we just I love that the, like when the question was posed to you, your answer was just, I'm going to work. 
It's just music. Like you're just like yeah. I'm not even like. What's my rate? What's my fee? Like what's the? How's this carved out? I mean, it it. The thing is like, all of the. I'm sure that the legal teams had. It was maybe the most complicated and the hardest project they had ever assembled. Yeah. Because they were dealing with Viacom, Jay Z's catalog. By the way, the producers on the songs that we used. Kanye, mm-hmm. Timberland, there were samples involved, right. and there was Linkin oh, Park and Warner Brothers. Yeah, and then we turned it into an EP and a visual, like an EP and a DVD, uh-huh. worldwide. So I can't even begin to imagine what the legal conversations yeah, yeah. were like on that. Right. I know that at the end of it, everybody ended up happy. We basically kind of we tried our best to split everything in ways that everybody got their piece and whatever. Mm-hmm. Like nobody, I didn't feel like strong-armed by Jay's people, and I don't think they felt that way by us, so uh-huh. it was all good. And right. by the way, we won a Grammy for it, and when we walked <laughs> up, he, he, like, I expected us to all kind of talk. Well, at least on our side, uh-huh. I, I, I expected us all to talk and Jay to talk, and he just pointed at the mic and stepped away. He was just like, no. Like, wow. Go, go like, talk. this is all them. Yeah, no, because he, he, he knew, like, what I had, right, my done. role in doing it, so he just kind of <laughs> said, like, good. That's dope. But he came with the stage, but he let you do the speech, yeah, the talking. Yeah. No, you can, I mean, it's on, you can pull <laughs> it up so on YouTube. Ill. He just kind of points at the mic. But I love that because so many projects that have that scale and potential die on the cutting room floor at stage one because it gets lawyered to death or something. Yeah. But it's sure. because you created, you just went out on a whim and was like, I'm just going to start working on this shit. And we had the vision. Like, I, I remember, like, when it came to the Grammy performance, for example, Brad was the one, our guitarist Brad was the one who said, you know, this whole mashup thing, as we all knew, came from the, the Danger Mouse Grey album. Mm-hmm. So, and the Grey album was where Danger Mouse just, you know, just having fun, he just made, he mashed up Jay's Black album and the Beatles' White album. Mm-hmm. So the idea was, for the Grammy performance, we said, that's where this mashup thing started, let's, let's finish it yeah. and bring it full circle and include the Beatles. Let's include Paul McCartney. And uh-huh. I was like, wow, that's such a dope idea. We're never going to get Paul McCartney, <laughs> but that's dope. And management, we, so he asked management to contact Sir Paul. Mm-hmm. And he came back immediately and said yes. And we were like... Mind blown. But that's the thing is like when the creative leads like that. Yeah. And you know that the, that the you know, you can, you can, it's almost like the, the, what people talk about when they talk about like a good elevator pitch. When mm-hmm. it's like, this is my concept. If, that's, if that concept is short and sweet and you get it and you know it's good, it's much easier to get, it, get to the finish line. Yeah, yeah. When you know it's... When you painted the believes, picture already. Yeah, yeah, when you believe in the concept. And right. so he said yes, and everybody else went, whoa, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then like, it was funny because Jay had just retired. Uh-huh. And so we were in. Paul McCartney Retired, was in. air quotes. Yeah, Paul McCartney was in. <laughs> yeah. And then we went to manager and said, okay, so like this is what we're doing. Uh-huh. And his man- Jay's manager said, no, 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 Jay's not doing it. And we were like, what? Nah. Come nah. on. <laughs> like, we, got a, we got Paul. Right. We got him. And then he was like, no, 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 Jay, Jay's not doing any more performances, any more music. Like he's just, he's an executive now and blah, blah, blah. So the, the idea was so strong uh-huh. that it even it even convinced them to right. pull him out of retirement for a moment right. at the beginning of it. It was probably one of those things where people said, one of the reasons people said, oh, he's not really retiring uh-huh. was because of this performance. Amazing. Like, Mike's vision is crystal clear here. And he's right. If you have that set, everything else will fall into place. Sometimes for myself, when I embark at the beginning of a project or collaboration, I actually imagine the headline of the hype beast post 
or what the Instagram photo or caption will look like. And this is without even knowing what we're actually making yet. It's like a trick to set my goals way into the future. And then my job as the lead is to just act on the steps to make that vision come to fruition. But what happens when that vision doesn't quite align with the body of work you've already created? Or maybe you want to keep what you've done in the past pure. Or maybe it doesn't align with the partners that you currently have in place. Whatever the reasons might be, there are times when you might need to consider creating a side project. I want to go into a little bit about Fort Minor. Okay, so Fort Minor is like your personal side skunk works project, I would say, <laughs> right? I wanted to ask because like it, I see it relating to brands a lot. Like a lot of like clothing brands have diffusion lines, right? Mm. And it's like they have ideas that for whatever reason they feel like they can't put into their existing big business. Yeah. So they create this other thing. How do you define a diffusion brand? Diffusion could be up or down, but just a different it like I've maybe it's like I've defined the parameters of this brand a so well that these other ideas don't fit into that parameter anymore. Is that why Fort minor was born? Yes. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cause because Lincoln park, it wasn't just that Lincoln park was so well defined. Uh, Fort minor came after the first two Lincoln park albums, which were basically the same aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And then we did the collision course thing with Jay and we also did a remix album called reanimation, which was much more electronic and hip hop. Um, but I, I, I never felt like with any of those projects collision course course included, I didn't feel like any of those were me Mm -hmm. doing hip hop, like where, where, where I came from. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to, to kind of play around with some stuff that was just, um, digging back into my hip hop roots, but approaching it with my newfound knowledge of like how to make a song and how to record. Like I was, I was a much better producer and a much better engineer than I was when I started. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go back to that and see what I would make. And it was really, I started for fun. Yeah. And then it just became a record. But with Lincoln park, the way I see it is almost like you have partners. You yeah. have like, right, and you have to have discussions with your partners. Yeah. Did you try to discuss these Fort Minor ideas with them, and they were like, mm, not, not us? No, because you I didn't even. I knew, it? No, I didn't. I didn't even go to them with it because I knew that, I knew what it like. If if, I knew that they would be so convincing in a way, like <laughs> that if I if I started talking to them about it, that, the songs would get changed a lot. Even for like you personally, like yeah. their opinion of it would change. Yeah, you. holy shit, that's mind blowing to it's, me. Was, it's a very what sign. It, are you? You have to be very. <laughs> what sign are what you? What sign am I? Aquarius. Oh, uh, okay, that's why. That's why. I, I think if you were a Leo, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no, but that no, I feel the same as you, man. Like I will hold ideas to myself yeah. because I know just by exposing them, they'll change the idea. Just hearing yeah. other people's well, thoughts. Well, you've on got them. like if you know you're susceptible to. <laughs> Like, like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good collaborator. Mm -hmm. Like I like to collaborate. Yeah. So there are times when I have an idea that I have, I feel like it's a pure idea that I know that if I start opening the door to other people, Mm -hmm. that the idea will change. And I have to think before I have the conversations, I have to, I have to check myself and Uh say, do you want to keep this idea the way it is? Or do you want to change it? Because if I don't want to change it, Mm -hmm then I just don't start the conversation. It's right. like, that's how Fort Minor happened. That's actually my new album, the, the solo album I just put out this week. 
that's it's the same thing where I just knew in both cases that I I had a complete vision mm-hmm. and I didn't want any other real imp- I didn't want any other input. Okay, so then the other side of that coin, did you have to sit down and tell the fellas, guys, I'm doing my own thing with this? Yeah, yeah, that was a little it was a little tricky, but at the same time, you know, we had been through um, we had had a really long run on the road and 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 with all the music we had put out and the guys wanted to take a break okay and i'm more keep working i'm more yeah (laughs) Yeah, i work i work i love to work Uh and i keep making stuff anyway even if i'm off yeah my attitude was like well like i'm gonna make this stuff anyway it was first it was i'm making it for fun and Mm. then it became a thing and it was like well the guys are gonna be you know what is this going to put them off the road for an extra, you know, six to nine months? Like probably not a big deal. Right. Right. You know? So I just let them know that way. That's kind of what I was thinking. And, um, it ended up being like it, it, I remember them being supportive. Cool. Yeah. They were cool. It's great to hear how Mike was protective of his new ideas, not wanting to share too much too early for fear of influencing himself in a way he knows he didn't want to. But at the same time, he knew he had partners in both music and business, and transparency is paramount to keeping the sanctity of Lincoln Park. Finding that balance was the key in allowing him to explore these different paths. So we're about to start talking about Mike's new album, Post Traumatic. And unfortunately, we can't do that without discussing the sensitive topic of Chester Bennington's suicide. Now, if you don't want to hear this subject matter, you might want to skip to the end of this episode. We're going to have links and phone numbers there for places you can reach out to get help and just talk to someone. Between Chester, Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain, and others, this topic might be a lot for some to handle right now. So yeah, here we go. And now you've got your new solo album. Yeah. Right. Which talk- it, it, it kind of... Um... Like I said, similarly, it was, I had an idea yeah. for it and it very, it was pretty clear. Right. I mean, you went through something really traumatic and then did you feel like right after that happened, you had to express it creatively? Yeah, I did. It, well, so let me explain it like this. So when, for, for me, I built something with a group of guys that, because it was so big and so, so, um, so many people associated me with it and it with me Mm -hmm. that it was enmeshed. Yeah. Right. So like when you think of Lincoln park, you think of me, Mm -hmm. you think of me, you think of Lincoln park. That's, you know, I think it's not what I set out to do in the beginning. I don't know if I had an idea of what, you know, any of that stuff, but it, it, it's what ended up happening. And I, and I, for better or worse, it was just true. And then I had, when I was making, even when I made things, when I made songs, when I made art, you know, paintings or or whatever contributed to the, um, I oversaw like, for example, the, the merchandise and the web and the, um, packaging. Yeah. Um, sometimes with Joe, I say oftentimes with Joe, um, sometimes without. Um, and, then a year ago, Chester passed away and it was like everything came into question all of a sudden. It's like, okay, we built this thing mm-hmm. together and 
just to use a really simple example of, of what has occurred, like I can't just go out and play the song numb on stage or mm -hmm. one step closer. Yeah. Right. Because if you have somebody else sing it, it's not the same. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't to me. And we did that. We had a tribute show with these other, all these wonderful artists that came out and, you know, sang his parts and, and we did a three hour performance at the Hollywood bowl for the fans. And I, and afterwards I, th I, I thought about it and I was like, you know, listening to the, even as we were rehearsing it, it's just nobody as good as all of all those artists were, they weren't Chester. Mm -hmm. So I was having this feeling of like, okay, so is, am I not allowed to do that anymore now? Yeah. Like, is that, is my, the, the, is Lincoln park done? And so therefore am I done? Mm -hmm. Um, Oh wow. It's hard, yeah. you know, cause and, and for me being able to like, I knew that I'm, it was just a self doubt. And that was the, it was a moment of self doubt. I shouldn't say moment cause it was like on and off for like maybe months. Mm -hmm. Um, but I made stuff anyway uh -huh. because I've always like, whenever I've been, um, dealing with things that are heavy or difficult, I'm always making art. Yeah. And it helps me like it's therapeutic. Uh huh. It's also kind of like, it's also kind of meditative. Yeah. It might be painting, but it might be like just playing, you know, instrumental music for right. example. Um, so yeah, so, so you were making stuff. So yeah. I was making stuff and eventually like I, those, some of those things turned into songs about what was going on. Mm -hmm. And, um, did you feel obliged to the fans? Cause not only was Lincoln park a, uh, that this thing you built, but now there's this following, which is massive. Did you feel right. like you owed something? Like, was this your response? Besides like a press release, you wanted like something more of like an emotional response. I didn't feel yeah, that to me, that feels like there was a, um, you know, like an obligation or like a, almost like a, you, if you didn't do it, you'd feel guilty. Like I wouldn't have felt guilty if you didn't put anything out. No, I wouldn't have felt guilty, but I, I felt like, like our, our relationship with the fans is, um, it's not a fan artist. I mean, it's more than a fan artist relationship. Like it it's, is. it's more cultural. Yeah. Like it's, you could see it on full, like a lot of people don't know that about our relationship with the fans. And, and it was on full display after Chester passed away. Like mm -hmm. there were tributes all over the world in, in, I mean, I mean, just imagine how many countries we played. Yeah. Like it, it was, you, you know, fans getting together. Some of them had their own concerts and sang all the songs. It's <laughs> amazing. Raised Your money. fans are almost more like Apple fans, right? It's like, like that. Yeah. It's like religious it's a little bit, a little bit, maybe, but the, but the, but the difference, um, well, I'd say maybe, and the thing that I, I, thing that I noticed about them in after that is that they were reaching out to one another, that it was like, uh -huh. they, they were going through something difficult and they needed, they didn't just need closure. They needed like, um, they needed to be consoled. They needed camaraderie and like community. Um, and some of them needed some of that more than others mm -hmm. because, you know, when you talk about, um, when you, it, you know, whenever it, it borders on or, or, or addresses suicide, that's those, that information is like a landmine for some people. Like yeah. it sits inside of a conversation and once it happens, like they can't, like undo it, uh -huh. you know? And if that triggers somebody, then it's re it can be really hard. Yeah. So for those fans, 
um, a lot of other, a lot of, a lot of us had to get educated on like for their behalf, on their yep. behalf, like had to get educated about how to talk about it and how to be sensitive to them. And now, um, when other artists have passed away, um, when other people, I mean, yeah. we had just, you know, recently Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, like I, I got called to do an interview about, about the same subject came up again and I'm in a better position now to talk about it than I was a year ago because mm -hmm. I've, I've learned so much. Right? Thrown, yeah. yeah. I've been thrown into this subject yeah. and it's, it's, I mean, the bottom line is there are so many people. We, we've got more influencers now than we've ever had in the history of the planet. Mm -hmm. It's diffused. Like your average kid living with their parents one minute they have, you know, 50 followers and the next minute they've got 5,000 mm -hmm. and then, then you blink and they could have a quarter million, yeah. right? Like they don't think of themselves, they think of themselves as popular, but they don't think of themselves as responsible mm -hmm. or like an influencer in that way. Yeah. And they, they're going to need to start because right. if they talk about something as, as tricky as suicide, um, look what happened to Logan Paul. Like he didn't know he's, mm -hmm. he was... I'm going to be very generous and say uneducated on the subject yeah. and people let him know mm -hmm. as yeah. they should. Right. Right. So that's, I mean, that's the thing about, you know, uh, the connections yeah. that we've got. The thing you said about suicide almost being like a landmine, like it gave me the chills because it is one thing. It's like if someone dies of cancer or like, yeah. it's very sad, but yeah. suicide is really like, I almost equate it like to a zombie film where uh -huh. like, you got bit and now like you heard about it, you got bit and now it's like, do I have that in me? Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. once you start thinking about it, it starts perpetuating. Yeah. And then you get like, the, yeah. The good news is for people that have that, um, you know, it's like a, vi it's a visualization thing. Mm -hmm. It's like a trigger. And the good news is unlike the zombie film that you're not doomed. Like you, you can work your way out of it uh -huh. again. Um, but it does take work and it does take, um, like we talk about now I've learned to talk about mental health as a thing that is, we should just, in the simplest form, we should think about mental health the way we think about physical health. Mm -hmm. So if you wake up in the morning and you say, and you have and your back hurts, you may decide, oh, it, it hurts a little bit. I'm going to take it easy. You may say, oh, it hurts a lot. I'm going to take, maybe I'm going to take a, take an Advil or take some medication. Yeah. Or one I mean, level mobile, higher, yeah. ooh, I got to go to a doctor. Right. I have to go see a professional. And no one does that for mental health right now. They don't do that for mental no. health usually. And people walk around just ignorant of their own mental health status when mm -hmm. they could be checking in and saying, okay, oh, I should take it easy or I should get medication or I should see a doctor. Like those are different levels of pain, right? Yeah. And we do have that mental pain and we should go through those processes if that's what we need to get better. Yeah, I just heard a, a David Chang podcast talking about Bourdain and he said like, it's so common to have call in the work and be like, yo, I can't come in, I feel like crap today, like my back hurts, like you said. Yeah. But if you call in the work and say like, I can't come in because of my mental issue, that's a huge stigma that no one wants to bring up. That's like, sure. oh, you're, you're weird. Yeah, you know, and well, it's also not they, right. they conflate it, they mistake it with, um, mistake it for like, just being crazy. Yeah. They lump it in with like, Oh, you're, you're unfit. Yeah. Yeah. But that's not true. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Like if, especially if you're dealing and, and I realize that from an employer's point of view, like it's a very fuzzy kind of excuse, right? Oh, I, I, I can't see, you can't see it. I can't yeah. see it. And I, and, and by the way, if, if the reason they're depressed is because of a very personal issue, mm -hmm. then 
they can't tell you. So yeah. now all of a sudden you're being told like, you got to just you trust me. It. Yeah. Trust me. I'm in trouble. <laughs> right. Like that's, that's hard. Yeah. That would be hard for an employer. I'm sure. Yeah. Okay. So this last part I think is, is something that I definitely wanted to bring up because I view what we do sometimes in life as like a rat race, right? And you enter this rat race and you try to figure out your ways to success and, and fame and notoriety and financial success and respect. And what's been happening with since Chester and even, you know, you could even say like Amy Winehouse before that mm-hmm. and now Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain. When, when Anthony Bourdain, when that happened, because that dude to me was like living the life. Mm-hmm. Like there was no, not financial success, but there was no more making it than his life. Yeah. It begged the question, and I, I want your take on this because I think you've in many ways completed the rat race. Like you've at least gotten to the point where you've seen the the other side of the rainbow and you've seen massive success. What is it about exiting that rat race that fucks up some people so hard? I mean, even like Kanye right now is like, he's openly struggling with like, what is it? What's happened? What is it on the other side? Tell us. I don't know. So for me, I mean, there are no definitive answers for people. Right. But one thing that's helped always helped me um, with perspective on, on success is the moment I had to realize that success was more subtle, could, could be in the more subtle things than you thought. So, you know, as it, when you're young, you think about money and, and, you know, maybe some people get into music for money, cars, girls, whatever, mm-hmm. right? Fame, just fame, yeah. just being famous. Yep. And, um, my, my, number one focus above those things the whole time was making great music, like Mm -hmm. making stuff that I felt was great. And other people could talk shit about it or do whatever they're going to do. But when I listened to it and I listened to something else that I thought was great, I could at least go, I'm getting closer. I'm getting better. Yeah. You know, and I'm certainly not bad at this. You were concerned with the product. That's it. Well, I wanted to make, I wanted stuff to be great. Yeah. And, so yeah, so then if 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 whether you make the money or you don't make the money, like, okay, well, I stood behind the the product mm-hmm. first and foremost, and mm-hmm. I and I we we made an album called A Thousand Sons, which was a concept record. It was very hard for people to digest. It was a polarizing record. We put it out, and before we even put it out, we had massive fights with the label about it because it wasn't commercial enough, yeah. and it got either one star or five stars uh-huh. on, on on everywhere it was reviewed. Right. Because there were people that said, wow, this is art. This is beautiful. And other people said, wow, this is not hybrid theory. Fuck you guys. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, and, and in order to put yourself in that position, you have to say, like, what are my goals? Mm-hmm. And am I achieving them before anyone else even sees it or hears it? Yeah. Am I achieving my goals without any other input? Mm-hmm. And we felt we were. So we put it out. And then it didn't matter how many people said bad things. We already knew that we were achieving our goals. Moving even further along in life, those goals can be even more subtle. They can be, you know, balancing work and and family life. They Mm -hmm. can be making sure that you feel, um, some people prioritize like an inner peace. Yeah. So that you're not constantly, there's not that noise of like, competitive nature and the world outside and the news feed and the whatever is going on. Like to be able to say like, I went, my entire day and I wasn't really phased by all that stuff. Like that's a good day. You're at that point. That's a big, I'm getting there. 
I'm getting there. Yeah. I have, it's still a struggle, though. Like, you still have to f- mute, like, deliberately mute things out. I mean, you work out, right? Like, if yeah. you work out, like, some days you come in and you're like, I feel great. Yeah. I'm ready to go. And other days you go, man, that workout was kind of weak. Yeah. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. Okay. But you're going to come back the next day and do, mm-hmm. you're going to, you know, you don't feel like, oh, my workout is, is ruined forever. Yeah. I'm just bad at this now. I quit. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's what I, I feel like with some people, like they feel like they got to a point where they achieved so much and they go, I don't have anything. Like what else is there? It's all downhill now, you know? And that's, yeah. that's sad. Right. I, I think I, for me, it's always been like, if you can, when you hit one goalpost, you got to look for the next one yeah, and yeah. look for it in a very like honest way. Right. What do you think? This is really honest advice from someone who has seen a lot firsthand. And quite truly, someone who is still learning each and every day. And because he's up there in that upper, upper echelon, I wanted to ask for his viewpoint on someone we see every day in the Hypebeast community. Someone who is figuring out his mental state in full view for all of us to see. Let's hear what Mike has to say about Kanye West. What do you think? I think with Kanye is very interesting because we're. Mm. I feel like we're seeing it. We're seeing him process it real time. Yeah. Well. <laughs> so he's in a situation, and I don't. I've met him. I don't. I don't. I won't pretend to know him. Um, but he's in a situation where he's got. He has. He has placed a lot of emphasis on a lot of things that are not in his control. And when you do that, you are, you are, you know, uh, affected heavily by those things. So if, 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 for example, if, if chart success Mm -hmm. is emphasized, you can't control that. You can make the best shit you want to make, but if people don't like it, that you literally can't control people into liking your stuff. Yeah. You can't, um, control them into buying your product or whatever. Uh-huh. I see what you mean. I, I, you also like he's you know and also if you're in an in an environment of chaos where you've br- you've you've made your in his case your brand yeah. is associated with a lot of other things. It's uh-huh. associated with Kim's family, it's associated with these designers over here and Adidas and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. You know, that's a lot of chaos. Yeah. That's a lot of stuff out of your control and if and if any one of those things like reflects badly or on you or, or, um, mm-hmm. uh, requires a response. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you're being pulled in those directions. I think that's very chaotic. Right. I would say if Kanye was in the room, he would say, I control all this stuff. Not true. No way. <laughs> wow. That's, and that's, I, I think that that's very like, Anybody who thinks they are, that's, I, I think they're kidding themselves, mm-hmm. you know, because that's just going to fall apart. That's a house of cards. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to me, the other thing, the other part of it is that he's, he's genuinely talented. He's mm-hmm. genuinely, you know, one of the best producers alive. Yeah. And when that's hovering over your head, that's a lot of pressure, yeah. you know, and he, and he, he, he's created this 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 culture of like of um of uh chaos right well (laughs) it's not just the chaos though it's it's 
it's you know i am a god i am uh-huh. the best i am whatever like right. you know of of confidence mm-hmm. culture it's like a culture of confidence when that's not humanly possible to be that confident every day. And I think to me, the bipolar thing that he's talking about and the moments of like weakness that you see him just kind of spaz. Yeah. Like, I think that's when his confidence is got, it gets shook and he cracks a little and he knows like, okay, you're a human being, dude. Mm -hmm. There's Mm -hmm. a, there's a real human in there going like, I can't, I can't be a robot. Right. I can't just, you can't just say, Hey, make me greatness right now. Yeah. If you listen to his music, that takes a lot of craft mm-hmm. to create those. So he didn't just give you every demo he made. Yeah. He made a lot of stuff to get to the albums that he puts out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he needs to move to your side of the hills. Maybe so. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> I don't, and that's the thing. I don't, I don't, I, I feel bad for him and I don't feel bad for him. Like, you know. Yeah. Cause he made the bed that he's sleeping yeah. in now. Yeah. I do. I. I do. I will say too. The other weird thing, though, is I don't think that's. I don't think that's the best influence on y- some of the young people, though. Mm-hmm. I think. I think he has a lot of um, responsibility. Wor- right? Worshippers. Yeah. A lot of people who just hang on every word and do everything like he does it, and you know, I mean, he's allowed to do certain things he does because he's earned those things. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And. I see, I see young people doing things that he does and it's like they haven't earned any of that. Like right. You haven't proven anything. You're not him. Like you yeah. can't act that way to people. You yeah. can't say those things to people. Right. And I don't know. It's awesome getting your perspective because you, you have the ability to live in that atmosphere that he's in, in that air. You know what I mean? Like you have felt that sort of like, you know, your face on a jumbotron. So like you yeah, understand how yeah, that yeah, feels, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah. And it's nice to see that it doesn't have to be that way. Like, there's a way that you can mute that stuff and really like be live like a normal human being. Well, I like to go to the I, I like to go to the movies <laughs> and grocery store. <laughs> right. You know what I mean, like we worked for the record. Like we worked hard to diffuse the amount of attention on our individual faces as a band. Like mm-hmm. everybody, when we were when when we were. In two thousand, you know, one, two, three, when it was the hottest it could be for us, mm-hmm. it was we literally had the the best selling album on the planet, mm-hmm. and we and then the follow up was was almost as big. It, yeah. was, it was a crazy time, and and when they asked, they would always ask for just Chester on the cover or just me on the cover of the magazine, and we say no, either put both of us or put all six of us. That's the that's what you get. Right, and. Every chance we got, we put all six of us in front because it diffused the attention. Like, you just knew Linkin Park as a band. Yeah. You didn't know my face mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as much. And so I could go to a grocery store. I could go <laughs> see a movie, and right. it would be okay. Yeah, you know, yeah. I wouldn't really get stopped that much. Right. So what the, I mean, you touched on this before, and just to wind up now, what is the future now, man? Like, Well, yeah, that's – I mean, I'm still figuring that out. Okay. And, and it is very um, – it's a heavy subject. Um. But the nice thing for me, I feel, you know, I feel good about my skill set. So I feel, I feel confident that I can make good stuff that mm-hmm. I, I like and that some fans will like. I also know that there are a lot of people that are hurting who are our fans and not our fans um, who have gone through some, some stuff in their life, right? Yeah. And I, I know that having gone through really horrible stuff this year um, and questioned everything, that... If I'm, if I can channel that, the honesty of what I've been through into the music and into the performances, then it'll be helpful for somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been doing meet and greets before 
uh, my shows and talking to a lot of the fans and hearing stories that I've never heard before. Mm-hmm. Like at other, you know, it's a whole different kind of relationship Yeah, where people are coming up and saying like, you know, talking about their, their, their brother, like worse than I can even imagine my twin brother, you know, uh, mm-hmm. died by suicide mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah. Like where you just go, Oh my God, I can't even begin to imagine what that's like. Right. And then they say, you know, and your records helping me, like yeah. it makes me feel like I can do this, like just seeing you up there on stage. And that's like just yesterday I did a, uh-huh. a signing here in town and they, that was, those were kind of, when stories. you hear that you can't stop. No, man. That's like, <laughs> it's, it's an amazing yeah. and beautiful thing. And, and, and I know that it's also, I mean, I can't put myself in the position of saving people. I can't, because yeah. I, I, that's for them to do. Right. I can just do my best to like live my my story and my mm-hmm. thing and and hope that they connect with it and that it inspires them to you know hang on hang on as long as possible to to be around for a really long time yes uh or just go get some help and take care of themselves yeah all right man thank you for your time that was dope hey thanks for listening to the episode with mike shinoda of lincoln park if you need someone to talk to if you're sad depressed or just can't figure stuff out, call 1-800-273-8255. Or you can visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org. Seriously, people out there can help you. And if they can't, I know for a fact you can help yourself. You just need to give yourself the time. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Season 2. You can find out more about the show or listen to other episodes at hypebeast.com slash radio. Please subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. I personally use Overcast. And leave us a comment. Tell me what you think of the show. And if you can condense your words and opinions into 280 characters or less, you can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Staple. Check us out on the web at businessofhype.com. And you can email any questions you might have to questions at businessofhype.com. The Business of Hype is directed by Daniel Nevetta. It's been edited and produced by Bright Young Things. You can check them out at byt.nyc. It's been engineered by Patrick Morris, and our intern is Carolyn Cow. This was recorded at Sibling Rivalry Studio and on location in my office in New York City. I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hypepiece Radio.